Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to today's episode. So I'm really excited about today's episode because it's actually a re-release of one of my very successful episodes, but this was recorded quite a long time ago. This is going all the way back to episode 50, and this was recorded in April 2021, so more than a year ago. Now, the reason I wanted to re-release this episode is because I'm finding that so often when I talk about self-love, when I talk about um, anxiety, depression, anger, a lot of what I talk about as far as the neuroscience behind the emotions that we feel circle back to topics that I cover in this episode. So if you have already listened to this episode and you found it useful, I would encourage you to listen again because you can always find information that's going to kind of really interest you or make sense the second time round. And if you haven't yet listened to this episode, I'm really excited for you to listen to it because it really packages in so much of what I talk about and the neuroscience of what is actually going on in your brain at a chemical level, but also at a physical level in the sense of your brain's hard wiring and how it's all, how the wiring actually changes and how you can actually manipulate the changes of the hardwiring of your brain through a change in your thoughts and your behavior. So while it might seem at the first part of this episode that it's all doom and gloom, there's so much that can be done and you're going to hear that in the second part of the episode. So no matter where you are right now with your chronic stress or anxiety, you can make some big changes. It's all about neuroplasticity. It's all about reshaping and remolding and you can start from any place, any position, any emotional state, something can be done even if it's minor. So it's a very exciting episode to listen to and I think absolutely everybody can get something out of today's episode and it relates so heavily to all my other episodes. Pretty much, I would say like 99% of all my other episodes. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode today and please share your feedback and what you thought about it and how you're going to implement some changes in the Facebook group. And if you're not already a member of the group, please join up. It is Do You Fucking Mind? with Alexis Fernandez. Enjoy! I think this episode is going to be really, really interesting, mainly because I recently actually did a couple of lectures around this topic and there's a few of the lectures and a few things that I've spoken about in the past and if you've been a long-time listener of the podcast, you'll kind of be able to see how a lot of what I talk about is going to tie into this episode and a lot of it is going to make sense. I'm talking about obviously the effects of stress on the brain But I'm going deeper into a bit of a scientific explanation of how stress will change, physically make changes in your brain. And then due to those changes in the brain, how there'll be more of a presence of certain neurotransmitters, neurochemicals. And because of that presence, you're going to start to behave differently. Things are going to affect you differently. You're not going to be able to do other things as well. And all these Um, it's kind of like an accumulation of all these negative effects that starts creating a bit of a like a vicious circle or a vicious cycle for you that you start to kind of go down and down and down and why things become really difficult and then I'm going to be talking about what you can do actions that you can put into place now starting today to start to reverse those changes and then bring your brain back to a state where you're not easily triggered you're not so stressed and to kind of literally rewire and re kind of build up those networks um to reverse the effects that stress has had on your brain. So it's really, really interesting. Also, not only is it interesting, but it's actually extremely crucial that we are all aware of this information because as you'll find out later on in the podcast, you're going to realize that a lot of 
neurodegenerative diseases stem from not taking care of your brain. There's a lot that we can do to take care of our brain to avoid getting a neurodegenerative disease, including things that are genetically, you're genetically predisposed to having. Even if you are genetically predisposed to having something, there are certain things you can do within your behaviors and your actions throughout your life that will change how that gene or if that gene is even expressed. So just because something is in your gene, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to carry out or manifest that disease in the future. So it is extremely important for your longevity, for your brain health and for your overall happiness that you listen to this kind of information. And then if you want to do further research on it on your own, I highly recommend you do it because it's pretty interesting. Now, The fun brain fact that I wanted to share with you guys today for the start of this episode is actually going to be on something that I am currently, it's one of the assessment pieces that I'm working on. And I've got to break down the assessment pieces. Pretty much this assessment, I have to, the first part of the assessment is I've got to break down uh, something called, it's called a biomarker. And basically a biomarker is kind of something that occurs that you can test for either through like MRI or EEG. There's, there's a, you know, heaps of different ways you can test for it, but it's a marker, a biological marker that's, that kind of gives you a clue if you're going to get a disease or not, or if you're prone to getting a disease or not. So it doesn't mean that it 100% will happen, kind of what I was talking about, neurodegenerative diseases, um, that kind of thing where it's kind of a marker saying, look, you are either definitely going to get it or you are at a very high risk of getting this. So that way, the, the good thing about biomarkers is people can then intervene before the disease manifests or at, at the very least, you're at least prepared how to deal with it when it does happen, okay? So that's basically what this this assessment was about and we've got it, we had to choose one, one um, disorder and a biomarker to test like how that biomarker will, will kind of be a good indicator of that disorder. So what I chose was EEG, which is electroencephalography, those things that you put on top of your head and they're like these nodules that test for... Um, electrical activity within the brain really really technical how that works I'd probably need to do a whole podcast on that so I will not explain the ins and outs of that because my brain fried trying to watch that lecture I had to watch it 30,000 times anyway so there's that and then the disorder that I chose was autism so it's basically saying how can you search for biomarkers for autism before the disorder manifests okay so autism is a neurological disorder that manifests around the time of about two to three years, kind of, you know, sometimes it's a little bit earlier, sometimes it's, well, you know, you're never going to get it later than three years, but it's around the two-year mark, two, two years of age. Now, there's a lot of talk about um, does autism, well, there used to be, not so much now, but there used to be this whole thing of like that autism was due to the vaccines that the child would get at around 18 months to two years of age. Um, that, I mean, that, that has been debunked many times with studies from, I think, don't quote me on this, but it's some, some Nordic country, I believe it was, uh, I don't even want to say the country, but it was some Nordic country even did a thing where they kind of paused all the vaccines for about a two year period. And the actual numbers of children that were still presenting with autism and still getting it was the same. So that kind of, that was a huge, huge study that was done there. And they even took massive measures and literally remove the vaccines altogether and the autism rates were the same. But if you don't believe that, separate to that, really interesting that was done in um, these EEG for biomarkers for autism, basically you're able – what these studies do is it measures 
brainwaves within certain regions of the brain, especially regions that have got to do with um, interpreting language. So whether they're talking about, you know, conversational or whether they're listening to language and then having to do uh, like um, follow instructions or play a task or just, you know, instructions on a video game, whatever. So a lot of it's got to do with like language comprehension and whatever, which is heavily linked to autism and the idea of, you know, how they comprehend language is different to control groups. Anyway, so what they did was they were testing brain waves in the frontal and medial parts of the brain and they were looking at if are there any kind of abnormalities in how frequently these brain waves are occurring um, or not. And what they found is that with certain brain oscillations, they call them in the alpha range and the theta range, there's all these different ones. I was focusing on alpha range, but whatever. They found that in certain areas there was way too like way higher a presence and then in other areas way lower so there's all these abnormalities within the brain waves detectable at three months of age so we're talking way 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 before the manifestation of autism is present because at the moment you can only diagnose autism through behavioral symptoms you can only look at a child's behavior and diagnose it based off that there's no scans there's nothing at the moment that's being used mainstream to say yep this is a marker for autism it's it's all based on behavior so now they're finding that you can actually detect the chances of a child getting autism at around three months of age through these this EEG technology. So it's really, really fascinating. If you're interested in that, just I highly recommend you Google, you know, like EEG, brain oscillations, um, autism biomarker or something like that if you do want to read further. So good times. I actually found that really, really interesting. Thought I'd share that information with you and I'll probably share more as I go along doing all my studies. But let's get into the topic of today, which is stress on the brain, what it does and what to do about it. Okay, so firstly, let's break down what is stress and other and different forms of stress because anxiety, for example, is a kind of stress. Anxiety is stress, obviously, if anyone... We've all been anxious. Anxiety is a necessary part of our lives. I've done a whole podcast on anxiety um, and it is a necessary part of our lives. Stress, stress response, fear, all of that is necessary for our survival and for our evolution, okay? So it's not something that you want to completely eliminate from your life, but you obviously want to have the good kinds and the acute kinds and you don't want to have the chronic kinds. That The chronic ones are the ones that are going to cause the issues in your life. So let's look at the difference. Acute stress um, is necessary. So it's obviously when you're responding to a stimulus that triggers fear. So back back in the day, if you're looking at like when you're out in the wild, yes, okay, a lion chasing you, but also something now, like it could be a deadline. It could be a sporting if you're an athlete and you're about to compete. That kind of stress is good because you get a surge of all, like you get adrenaline, cortisol, you get all a surge of all these chemicals that are going to help you perform at your most intense at that moment, okay? So it is really important. Even talking on a stage to a set, unless it's paralyzing, it's sometimes quite helpful to have, you know, acute but not intense stress before you get up because that's what's going to give you that boost of energy to be in the zone, to get up there and just get it done, right? So there's a lot of areas in our life um, where it's going to be helpful, okay? And I'm sure that you can think of many examples for yourself where stress in acute um, amounts you know, just like spikes when you need it is actually going to be helpful. It's going to be a motivator for you to do something. And that's normal. We don't need to get rid of that. If you got rid of that, then you would be 
um, disadvantaged in many areas of your life. It's a need, okay? Now, the problem is uh, chronic stress. Now, this is where if you are wondering if you're feeling chronic stress, this is kind of where you might be moody, easily set off, you're sleeping poorly, you're forgetting simple things and um, simple you know, not just appointments and not just something that someone told you, but you're forgetting maybe even words of things and, and you know, locations of things and, you know, uh, where, you're, where you last placed your item, feeling restless all the time. So all these things are clues that you might be suffering from chronic stress. Chronic stress happens. I mean, there's a million different ways that you can get chronic stress, but here are some examples. If you're always arguing with someone all the time, okay? Uh, abuse, if you're being abused, that's cr- chronic, chronic levels of stress. If you are overworked under the pump, you're never giving yourself enough rest time and that could be physically or mentally. Often, it's very much um, mentally as well where you're going to get a lot of this like emotional stress is if you are overworking yourself mentally, emotionally and you're never giving yourself a rest. If you're constantly under pressure, all these things are going to be causes of chronic stress and it is not good for you at all it is literally changing the shape of your brain it's changing the circuitry of your brain which I'm going to go into in a second and it's actually changing the size of your brain it actually will shrink your brain so if you're in a situation where you are chronically stressed you need to do something about it okay nothing is more important than your brain health as far as your life is concerned, nothing is more important because if you're not going to start to put into place some protective mechanism, some, some parameters to protect your brain and the longevity of your brain, then you are going to be susceptible to not only a really stressed and sad life, but susceptible to things like depression, neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, Alzheimer's, all of that. It sounds really extreme, but it's just the, it's fact it is a fact, okay? So people that are thinking, oh, you need to sleep less if you want to hustle and if you want this, you got to do that, you got to do that. Yeah, cool. If you want to make a lot of money and then have a neurodegenerative disease and lack in sleep and be super stressed and depressed, go for gold, listen to that advice. But in my opinion, no money, no amount of money, no career that pays this much money is worth being chronically stressed, End of story, it is not worth it. All you need to do is speak to somebody who has had a partner or a relative who has passed away from a neurodegenerative disease and understand the ramifications that that had on that person's life nearing the end of their life. It's not worth it. It's never going to be worth it for you or the people around you. So I hope that this podcast will inspire you to put some time and effort into your brain health and into your like protective parameters around what you will and won't allow for yourself and for your lifestyle. Even if that means making some sacrifices in your life, it is worth it. Okay, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of break down the topics a bit. I'm going to firstly talk about what actually physically happens in the brain, the actual physical changes and how your brain responds to that. I'm going to talk about that. Then I'm going to be talking about how stress can be passed down genetically and the epigenetics of stress. That's really, really interesting. Then I'm going to be talking about how your upbringing could have made you more susceptible to all of that. And then lastly, I'm going to be talking about what you can do now to reverse that. Well, not even reverse it, but rebuild those areas of the brain. 
So that way you can then start to rebuild your healthy brain because the brain is quite moldable. It is quite plastic. It's not all gloom and doom from here if you're a really stressed person. There is shit you can do and there's a lot of shit that you can do and it's going to have really, really, really positive effects on your brain if you consistently do it. Okay, so it's not it's not all bad. It's exciting for those of you that actually want to implement some change. Right, so let's talk about what actually happens in the brain when you are stressed. So there's a part of the brain which controls your body's reaction to stress. It's called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. It's this part of the brain that releases cortisol for instant response, okay? So this is for acute stress and also for prolonged stress as well. Now, interestingly, people that have really high levels of cortisol chronically, so all the time, When it comes time to respond to an acute stress, as in the good stress, they actually don't have the ability to have a spike in cortisol. So not only are they just stressed all the time because they've got all this cortisol present, way too much cortisol present that isn't getting absorbed properly through the brain and being metabolized, not only is that happening, but when they actually need the stress, they're not getting that big spike of adrenaline to push them through. So they have less of it when they actually need it and more of it all the other times, okay? So that in itself can show you why it's so bad. Now, this high level of cortisol for long periods of time really kind of wreaks havoc on the brain for all these different reasons. What cortisol will do is it increases activity, activity levels, and also the neurons and the synapses between the neurons, which is the the connections between the neurons in a part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is part of a brain. It's a it, it's a structure. It's part of this network structure of brain regions in the center of the brain called the limbic system and that whole limbic system area is responsible for emotion processing all kinds of emotion but in particular they've found a lot of studies where the amygdala is very heavily linked to fear processing and forging fear-based memories for your protection right but also when you look at things like trauma ptsd that's where the amygdala is quite active in those times in people's lives okay but the amygdala Basically, high levels of cortisol is going to keep the amygdala really, really active. More connections within um, the cells that are in the amygdala are kind of, there's a lot of activity going on there. Now, at the same time that this is happening with the amygdala, like overfiring, overfiring, fear, 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 stress, 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 stress. At the same time that all that's happening, signals because of the cortisol and the high levels of constant cortisol, signals in the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a part of the brain that controls memory and um, learning and uh, consolidation of memory, so saving memory. That part of the brain starts to deteriorate. So they found that high levels of cortisol in the brain will shrink the hippocampus. So you're going to get less connectivity in that area, less size in that area, less activity and neuronal connections in that area that is involved with memory and uh, learning. So it starts to make sense now. If you start looking at all these things, it starts to slowly click when you listen to all of this, why it is that people that are really stressed start to forget things. They don't really know where they place things. And because of that, they get irritable because it's really annoying. And it's just kind of this vicious circle. Now, on top of that, when all of this is happening in the amygdala, all the cortisol, all this like increased activity, it's then reducing, it's kind of inhibiting the activity in the adrenal axis, which is what I was talking about, that releases cortisol for instant response. It inhibits the 
ability for the adrenal access to control your stress levels. So instead of knowing when to kind of taper down the release of cortisol, when to crank it up, it inhibits its ability to control that. So it, then it starts just constantly releasing more and more cortisol. It doesn't have the ability to kind of wind it back or switch it off altogether. So now you can see a bit of a like a vicious cycle going on where there's um, an inability to control the cortisol that's going on, that's being released. And then that cortisol is affecting the amygdala and the hippocampus. And then due to it affecting the amygdala, making it overactive, it's then pumping back more cortisol through the brain. And then the adrenal axis is even less likely to be able to control the cortisol release. So it's going again and again, back round and round in circles. So as all of this is happening, then you're actually getting, when there's that much cortisol present all the time, it actually is damaging to synaptic connections within the brain, not just the hippocampus, but within the brain in general. And that's where you can literally get the brain begin to shrink after a prolonged period of time. And then imagine, when the brain shrinks, what happens? You're less, you're less um, proactive. You're less likely to be using certain, like all the areas of your brain in a like coherent way. You're going to have more, everything's going to be more emotionally fueled because there's less activity through the prefrontal cortex. Cortisol um, makes the area, in particular, the prefrontal cortex of the brain shrink, which means less connections, less connectivity in the prefrontal cortex. That part of the brain is that, that controls concentration, executive function, judgment, social interaction, decision-making, predicting what's going to happen in the future. All of that is happening in the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex has a lot of influence normally in a normal brain. It has a lot of influence in kind of downplaying the limbic system and the amygdala. It kind of, what I was talking about in my last episode um, or two episodes ago, um, about attachment theory and whatever, it's actually kind of downplaying it and it's letting that part of the brain know, okay, you need to like relax, you need to chill, everything's fine. It's If you're then getting shrinkage in that part of the brain, then the limbic system kind of has like, you know, total like full reign. They've got like a green light to kind of go a bit haywire and it takes over the brain. And that's where it's, it starts to become everything's really emotional, quite stressful, quite, you know, you look at a task that some people perceive as quite doable. Yeah, it's a little bit stressful, but it's fine. And someone who's got chronic, chronic stress will look at that as an insurmountable task. It's got nothing to do with your levels of intelligence. It now comes to do with what part of the brains are overactive and what is taking over. So there can be very intelligent people who can get to a point in their life when they've had chronic stress for years and years and years that look at a task that seems basic and drown in a glass of water because they're like I just can't I can't wrap my head around this this is just too, it's too much and that's because their emotions are just going haywire on them so then looking at all of this and looking at the lack of connections within different areas of the brain it starts to all make sense as to why it kind of really sets the stage here for depression Severe anxiety, anxiety disorders such as social anxiety disorder or um, obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a lot of things that can come out of. And I don't know if you can think of any personal examples. I know a lot of my listeners could pinpoint personal examples of people in their lives where they've seen them kind of, you know, when people say, oh, that person lost the plot because they were too busy or whatever there's a science behind that if you're too stressed if there's way too much weighing down on a person chronically 
of course they're going to go quote unquote insane in the sense of they can develop some sort of a disorder of the brain because they have kept it in this toxic environment for too long. Okay, so if you know somebody in your life or you yourself in particular, but your parents, your relative, whoever, if you're seeing that person under chronic stress and they're in a situation where no one's doing much to help them, it's important that you do something to step in and try and alleviate some of the stress or try and educate that person on what what could be happening if they themselves aren't going to try and alleviate some of that stress because that's when you start to encounter all these issues within actual um, uh, degenerative problems within the brain. So then you've got, you know, depression, all these problems, but then even more scary than that, scarier than that is full-on degeneration like Alzheimer's disease. That's a big one, very heavily linked to chronic stress, um, dementia as well. And there's a whole, like, there's a, wait, there's a shitload more. I'm not going to mention them all, but you can just imagine anything that's going to break down in the brain is going to cause some sort of an issue down the track. Now, let's. This is now what I want to talk about with like genetics and all of that. There was this really cool study done. My lecturer the other week, absolute legend, fantastic lecture. I literally have watched it a few times since because it's so brilliant. But basically, what he was talking about was how all these studies that were done in a rat model and how they can. The thing is, you can't actually do this study in humans as a controlled study. You can do an observational study where you can take populations of people where something is already kind of happening and observe it and that's been done. But the beauty with the rat model is that it is a controlled study. You create the environment that you're trying to observe. You can't do that ethically a lot of the time with human beings, obviously. Um, but they don't have those rules around like rats and, you know, that's a whole nother thing if you want to get into like animal rights and whatever. However, I'm not getting into that. So they did this study with the rat model and what they found was that rats, so a, a baby rat is called a pup, which I found really cute, a puppy, cute. Anyway, rats, the more nurturing the rat mother is to the baby will play a massive role in how that pup responds to stress later in its life. For the rest of its life, how it just, how it just um, or organically will respond to stress. Okay, so pups of nurturing mums are way less susceptible to stress because when that pup is really nurtured, and, and they kind of looked at how much the the mother pup licks the pup, and that's like a, a show of affection and and like comfort to the baby. So the more licking, the more nurturing that pup was the less susceptible that pup was later on in life to become stressful because the brain, interestingly enough, develops, when, when you're nurtured, it develops more cortisol receptors, right? So these receptors stick to the cortisol and then that is going to like, it's going to dial down the response of that chemical, of that neurotransmitter. Because if, if you've got lots of receptors for that neurochemical, it will eat up it will eat it up faster. So it's less present within the synapse. It's less less available for other areas of the brain to be affected by it. Those pups, the pups of negligent mothers had the opposite outcome. So they were way more sensitive to stress, way more sensitive to stressful conditions, being stressed, having anxiety. And also they didn't have as many cortisol receptors, so they weren't absorbing the cortisol that was present in their brains. So then separate to that, when they put a pup that had been um, that had a negligent mother when they moved the pup to a pup with a nurturing mother 
those negative effects started to be reversed. They started to dampen down and the pups started responding the way the other nurtured pups would, okay? What int- okay, so that's really interesting because you're seeing already how your nurturing and how the way you've been nurtured can influence and impact how you respond to stress later on in your life. Not to say that you can't then intervene and change something, but it gives you a good idea of kind of how this can start from a very young age. And there's a lot of people that go through life like really sensitive to stress and really whatever. And this may be, not 100%, but it may be because of how they were raised. More interestingly than that is that they found that There were epigenetic changes. So epigenetics is how a gene is expressed. It's kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's really interesting. And I actually think I want to do a whole podcast on epigenetics on the brain. But basically, you've got, you know, your set structure, your DNA, your genes, which basically your genes code for everything it can code like from your eye color to your skin color to the the the, the way your hair if, if it's straight or wavy to your height to also personality traits right that all is encoded but one thing is having it all there encoded but a lot of the genes that you carry you never express for example you know you've got genes from your mum genes from your dad There's going to be a dominant gene, the one that's expressed, and then there's going to be a recessive gene. But then you also might be a carrier for all these other genes that never get expressed or don't get expressed until later on in your life, okay? So epigenetics influences how your genes are expressed. And not only can it influence how your genes are expressed, but then that expression can then be carried on through generations. So they're finding in the rat model that rats that are raised in a really stressful environment due to having a really negligent mum who never licked it, never nurtured it, that rat then carries through in its DNA to its pups and the pups' pups later on this heightened susceptibility to stress, okay? So... It's really, and this is what happened. Okay, so separate to that, for example, if you're raised, nurture, 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 nurture. It's great. You're not susceptible to stress. Everything's great. But then later on, you find yourself in a situation where it's high stress, high stress, high stress, high stress. So then in that situation, it doesn't matter how you were brought up, no matter how nurturing your parent could have been. If you're you're now in a situation where you're exposed chronically, then you're still going to get those epigenetic changes within your genes, right? And then potentially you could possibly be passing that down through your genes. Now, this is where my episode of today ties in heavily with the attachment theory episode of, I believe it was two episodes ago. If you haven't had a listen to that because you don't think it's relevant to you, I still would recommend you go and have a listen because not only does it, I mean, you might not care about attachment theory at all, but it will help you understand people that you engage with all the time. It could help you understand your own partner, your parents, your friends, it's, I think it's really, really informative to understand attachment theory to get a better understanding of human beings in general. But having said that, everything that I spoke about in the attachment theory podcast will play heavily into what I'm about to talk about now. And it talks about how your upbringing can actually really change the shape and the, the way your brain is formed, um, whether it be 
susceptible to stress or whether it be all about nurture, 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 you know, you can deal with stressful situations really easily and you're not susceptible to like always being highly strung or stressed or anxious, okay? If you take everything that I just said just now about how chronic stress can create all these changes in your brain, imagine now a child who is under chronic stress all the time. But on top of the fact that they're under chronic stress, it's happening to a developing brain, okay? So they're trying to create all these connections that are occurring in every other brain around them, all their peers and whatever, but they're under a whole lot of stress. And this could be neglect, this could be abuse, or it could be exposure to stressful situations all the time. Like parents arguing in front of them, consistently again and again and again that's extremely extremely unfair to the child to be arguing in front of the child over and over and over again now my personal opinion when people think that they have to stay together for the sake of the child I think it is absolutely outrageous because yes children suffer massively when their parents get divorced because that is a very tumultuous time for their like for them emotionally however worse is being exposed to constant conflict where they have no control over the outcome of the situation. That is worse for the child because it is part of it's through their developmental phase. If the parents don't get along, if they're hating on each other and they're choosing to argue in front of the child all the time, that is infinitely worse than the parents having yes, it's quite, you know, difficult for the child to go through divorcing, but if you can divorce and be civil and show the child love and consistent love and stability throughout that that is healthier for the child exposure to stress is worse especially if it's chronic okay so now you're starting to get a bit of a picture okay these children are being exposed to stress chronically throughout their whole life then they hit the teenage years what do you think is going to happen they the stress the cortisol has limited the connections in their prefrontal cortex we're talking here forward planning executive planning prediction of behaviors understanding that there's consequences to your actions that's been dampened down and your amygdala and all the emotional processing has been fired up like crazy not only that they're also not able to remember things as well and they're also not able to learn or retain things that they've learned that well either because like i said it affects the hippocampus so all of that that's happening now imagine in a in a developing teenage brain and then people wonder why these children rebel. They're not able to focus in class, so they feel like a bit of an outcast. They're frustrated because they're not comprehending the information the way other people would, okay? So now they, they feel like they're not keeping up with their peers. Then they start to meet other groups that are misfits because they feel like a bit of a victim. And when someone is driven by emotion and not the prefrontal cortex of logic, they're going to feel like the victim way easier than someone that can look at a situation logically and think, oh, okay, I might not be the victim maybe this happened it wasn't someone who's driven by emotion is going to feel attacked all the time so now if you've got this child that's developed with a brain like that they're going to feel like the victim they're going to feel attacked they're going to start to hang out with people that are so that they associate and can relate to so it's other people who have gone through what they're going through and that is then when you get the misfits the rebels the dropouts all of that is happening because of this whole long process from childhood to where they are now that has heavily impacted how their brain developed so it's really easy to point your finger at like a rebellious teenager and think, oh, ridiculous, oh, ridiculous, this and this and that, like punish whatever, you're not punishing them properly. But you really need to be looking at all the other aspects of their life. How was their upbringing? Was it a, a, you know, a suitable upbringing? And I'm not saying that every rebel has had a bad parent, mind you, because like I said, certain things can be genetically carried down. 
right? Or there could be other reasons like some sort of neurological disorder going on in their brain that's causing them to behave that way. But a lot of the time, in cases where children have been neglected, abused or exposed to a lot of stress, the way they act out is going to be quite consistently different to the rest of their peers who have had the opportunity to be raised in a very nurturing environment, okay? So I guess the take-home message here, the key when it comes to humans in general, but in particular in this topic, children, is nurturing and love is key for children and for adults, okay? That is key. That is how you kind of mend problems. That is kind of how you start to increase more activity within the frontal cortex and dampen down the emotions. It's love, it's support. So I think it is fucking hysterical when people think that being a single parent is unhealthy for the child or not having a male or female representation for the child is unhealthy like fuck off cunt it doesn't matter who the parent is it doesn't matter what gender the parent is it doesn't matter if it's one if it's two if it's multiple it could be two mums two dads non-binary parents if they are loved and protected from stress or fear or a fearful environment they are already ahead anyone who thinks it's anything other than that is a dickhead and can get fucked in my opinion you can tell i'm pretty passionate about the topic can't you but anyway i just had to oh my god that actually makes my blood boil because people like that those psychopathic conservative people who think that they understand more about the child's upbringing than someone who actually cares and loves that child is a cooked lemon and shouldn't have the right to tell people what is right and what is wrong about their own personal life and how they raise a child. We should be lucky that there are loving people out there, no matter who they are, wanting to raise children. We need more good, loving, caring people raising children, not fucking uptight psychopaths that are going to brainwash their child into being as judgmental as they are. Anyway, that's a whole nother podcast. So now let's talk about what can you now do to change your brain? Let's say you're in a situation where you're like, fuck, that's me. Like, that's me. I'm headed down that path. What the fuck do I do? I can't even blah, 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 blah. There's a couple of things you can do and basic, basic things. So it's very, very exciting. All right, let's break it down. Number one thing you can do is regular exercise. Regular exercise is one of the best things you can do to start to increase your levels of endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, feel-good neurotransmitters. You start to dampen down the presence of cortisol in your brain. And second to that, exercise helps increase the connectivity between not only your prefrontal cortex and the limbic system and the amygdala, and it's those areas that, uh, you know, the more those two areas of the brain talk, the more you can talk yourself out of a stressful environment or talk yourself down off that heightened anxious state. The more activity you have there, the more ability to ha- you have to tackle those anxious and stressful times. But you also increase the interhemispheric activity as well. So the two hemispheres talking to each other. The more you can get those two hemispheres talking to each other, the more you increase that kind of overall connectivity throughout the brain, right? So basically you are increasing connections. And like I said earlier, cortisol dampens and starts to diminish the connections in the brain. This is going to bump it up. The more connections you have, the more what they call cognitive reserve you have. And cognitive reserve is like brain backup. 
for example. So if you are someone that's going to get a degenerative disease and you don't have many connections, you're going to be hit hard for a long time before you die. If you have someone, if you're someone that has a lot of cognitive reserve, we're talking a lot of connections. These are the people that, you know, learn multiple languages, learn all these skills, always learning, always growing. They've got a lot of connections in their brain, a lot of reserve cognitive reserve it's called so if they are hit with a degenerative disease there's a lot of degeneration that has to occur before that person is severely affected because they've got all this extra connectivity and mass as a protective factor so when they do finally get hit with the dementia or Alzheimer's, it's way later on in their life closer to death. So instead of suffering 15, 20 years with this degenerative disease where you have no memory and it's really quite painful for you and everyone else, you're probably suffering for about three or four years at the very end of your life. It's really, really fascinating shit and I really encourage you to look into that. But then separate to that, exercise also increases a neurotrophic factor called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is an amazing compound in the brain and it basically helps increase connectivity um, in your hippocampus, which is again where um, learning and memory is stored. So that is an incredible thing. The more of that neurotrophic factor you can have, the better your um, connectivity throughout the brain and also your memory retention and um, ability to learn things is also improved. Therefore, you're going to be less likely to be depressed because you're having less of these neurological problems going on and you're going to start to feel better because there's a like a diminishing of the problems, but you're also bumping up all your feel-good neurotransmitters. Second to that, meditation is king for reversing the effects of cortisol on the brain and stress, the production of cortisol on the brain. If you meditate often, ideally, Ideally, you wouldn't be doing it like four or more times, but there's been studies that show that even twice a week has quite positive results on the effects of stress on the brain and how it can start to reverse that and reverse the actual shape and connectivity and makeup of the brain if you start to meditate. Meditation has very, very, very similar effects to exercise on the brain. It's that ability to be focused on something. Focusing on a task starts to calm down your um adrenaline and your cortisol response and it starts to really ramp up the activity through your prefrontal cortex which is awareness being in the moment being present and and knowing what's around you're not like it's you're not in fight or flight you're in this present you're kind of in a flow state which is a very different part of the brain again it also encourages the production of more feel-good neurotransmitters you're getting dopamine serotonin you're getting all of that And so you're starting to kind of rewire how the brain is. You're teaching yourself to calm, to get into that calm state more often. It's that whole connection, you know, prefrontal cortex to amygdala to calm down. Okay, so that's also very, 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 very good. Okay, another thing that you can do is talk to somebody. Talk to somebody that is going to be a neutral person to talk to about your most stressful things you want to be able to look at and this is kind of where you know cognitive behavior therapy and all of that semi ties into it but it's this concept of trying to neutralize the emotions around what you normally would consider the most stressful and the way you do that is by talking I mean ideally if you've got the budget to a therapist or a psychologist but you can do this with someone who's a neutral playing ground the the calmest person you know basically who you know is not going to set off all these triggers and make you blow up about what you're already stressed about but it's the idea of being able to tackle what you're stressed about or what causes you the most anxiety 
in the calmest way possible and talk about it in a really calm way. Once you do that, and the more often you do that, the brain starts associating, this doesn't have to link to me freaking the fuck out and not being able to talk about it and having a breakdown every time I talk about it. You're able to start associating calm conversation and the ability to maybe problem solve around that to stressful stimulus. So the more you start to associate, I can be calm in this environment, I can have a conversation and be a bit more proactive and problem solving about it instead of just thinking about it and avoiding it, then you're going to be less stressed the next time that thing crops up in your life, okay? So those three things I think are absolutely, absolutely crucial and it's going to help obviously the structure of the brain, the makeup of the brain, but it's also going to help your epigenetics, how your genes are going to be expressed further on down the line in your life and then potentially as you pass it down in your genes. So it's really, really important um, that you start doing this now. Don't wait till you're older. Brain health is, is a topic of now. It's a topic of today. You don't Pretty much once you start to manifest symptoms of a degenerative disease, it is too late to intervene, okay? The damage has been done. So don't think that this is a topic for old people to care about. It's too late, unfortunately, for them. Very unfortunately for them, okay? So your job is to care about it now. What are you going to do about it now? The younger you can hear this information, the better, the younger you can start to implement all this information, the better. It's not to say that if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s that you can't. There's a lot you can do. But the earlier you intervene, the better. So I want you to, if you know anyone that's severely stressed, please pass them this podcast. It's crucial for them to understand what they now should be doing. You need to be cutting out stressful situations in your life. You need to be severing stressful or toxic relationships out of your life. This is actually detrimental for your health, your mental health, Okay. And you also don't want to be, you know, in an environment where you're kind of facilitating more stress for other people. You want it to be the reverse, okay? So I really, really hope that you guys have learned something like really important in today's podcast that you can take that home with you, that you understand about, you know, meditation, exercise, creating a loving environment, creating protective factors, learning as much as you can, creating that cognitive reserve in your brain and how stress can impact your brain for the worse okay so I want you to really really re-listen to it if you need to learn this information back to front so you can share it with other people the more people that are aware of this the better we're trying to spread the awareness of brain health and what stress can do to the brain it's not worth it chronic stress is not worth it so please if you have anyone out there that you're worried about help them please help them okay thank you so much for listening guys i really 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 appreciate it start meditating start exercising and you can turn it around you can rebuild those structures and you can turn it around remember the brain is plastic thank you so much for listening to this encore episode of stress and the effects on the brain love you guys so much please keep sharing with all the people that you love please keep tagging me in everything i absolutely love it and remember be kind to yourself be kind to your brain don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself danke